Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. Pisando la pelota Nelson, a la media vuelta se vuelve a marchar Nelson, Martinelli con la pelota, el recorte de Martinelli, segundo tanto de Martinelli, segundo gol de Gabriel Martinelli. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always with James from Gunnerblog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning to you too. Uh, I, I guess it's a goodly morning because of, of what, the league table? The league table, we won, we kept a clean sheet, Man United lost, Manchester City lost, Tottenham lost. That's good league. I mean, Tottenham are having a terrific time, aren't they? It's amazing. I mean, I'm very, very much enjoying what they're doing at this moment in time. I have <laughs> We'd to like say, to thank them yeah. for their contribution to this season. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. It's uh, it's it's wonderful to watch. Long may it continue, and I think it gives us all warm feelings in our hearts. Yeah, it, it really does. I mean, quite calamitous stuff at the weekend. Hugo Lloris's arm came off. Ooh, or something. Well, I like, saw that. Did you see it? Did yeah, you? See it? Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's one of those awful ones where he makes a mistake and he compounds the mistake with, I don't know, a, a compound fracture or something. It's it's not nice. Uh, but, you know, this is the season of schadenfreude so far. It's quite remarkable how bad United are, how bad Spurs are. I mean, long may it continue. Long may it continue and we haven't beaten either of them. Exactly. Not to bring Good it point. down or anything, but, you know... Well, also, we may need it to continue very long. I think that's the main thing. <laughs> we might do. I mean, in fairness, um, whatever reservations we might have about our performances, you know, we have to take advantage and get results when when the other teams don't do as well as, as you expect them to do. So we did that this weekend. Um, mm. It was a really positive weekend from a results point of view. You know, when you lay it out, there it is. There's the Premier League table. We are third. We uh, we did keep our second clean sheet of the season, which is very welcome, obviously. We won the game. We got three points. All those things are, are positive. We will, of course, uh, move to the results versus performance debate, which is raging, raging yeah. across across Twitter and on my timeline. And it's quite interesting, actually, the, the diversity of opinion on this in that, you know, there's a lot of people who are saying, well, who cares how we play as long as we win? And then there are other people who say, well, we can't keep winning if we keep playing like this. And somewhere in the middle, the truth lies. And we'll, we'll get to that at some Try point. We'll get to it. We will. We will. Um, but, yeah, I mean... It wasn't much of a game. Let's let's say that no, there were it positives. Wasn't spectacular. It was not. 
in fact, it was quite soporific. I mean, the, the atmosphere, particularly in the second half, was very flat, and I have a degree of sympathy with the supporters in that respect because there wasn't a great deal to get excited about. No, I mean, this is a game, a home game against Bournemouth, and I have to say, in the first half, Bournemouth were as bad as any team I've seen at, at the Emirates or almost any team I've seen us play in the last uh, couple of years. You know, if you want to leave out lower league opposition or or some of the more obscure opposition in the, the Europa League, you might even mm. include one or two of those, um, but they were really bad. Unbelievably bad. The uh, the guy um, Solanke. I was looking at him, going, "Is it, how is he a professional footballer? Why does it take him eight touches of the ball to sort of get it under control?" They were terrible. They were terrible. You're absolutely right. And in fact, I was sat next to a, a reporter who was covering Bournemouth, and he couldn't believe how bad they were because mm. they'd been do- playing okay and he was like this is really atrocious from them um, and actually what we saw I think in the second half is that they just sort of woke up and were suddenly you know something like themselves and it really completely changed the dynamic of the game but they were really bad and I think anything that we look at in the first half I think you know it, it was as much their awfulness as it was our goodness I suspect yeah I mean I thought the first half from our point of view was certainly more positive than the fir- than the second half but in in the context of the overall game I think you do have to take into account how bad Bournemouth were and look we ended this game with two shots on target home game mm-hmm. against a team who played that poorly and didn't play you know that much better in the second half certainly they were better but it was a really low bar um it's it's weird, isn't it, that this this team has just doesn't seem to have confidence in in what it's doing. That was actually something Emery said. We lost confidence in the second half, and I'm thinking, what is being said at halftime? You know, you go in, you're a goal up, you're at home, they're playing really badly. Surely the 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 halftime talk and the the focus is come on let's go out and let's really stick it to them let's make their lives even more difficult if we do this we can we can hurt them look at the way they've been doing they look how poor they are all over the pitch and I thought there were things about our first half performance which were quite promising in in the sense that there seemed to be a, a coordinated press which yeah. which we haven't seen very often at, at times this season and it worked I mean it didn't. It didn't give us a lot in terms of attacking threat, but what it did was it prevented Bournemouth um, from getting out. They gave us a lot of cheap throw-ins in their half, which allowed us to to play the game more in their half than in ours, which is good. But it was just like, in the second half, we we completely switched off from that. We didn't do any of that in the second half, and and uh, yeah, I thought that was I thought that was odd. I, I'm finding it hard to understand what we're doing. Yeah, I re- I do as well, to be honest. I had an interesting sort of conversation uh, or discussion on Twitter last night where I sort of tweeted out, does anybody think they know exactly what Unai Emery is trying to do? And it, it wasn't a facetious question. Like, I, I genuinely am finding it difficult to decipher exactly what the plan is. Mm. And there was a fascinating sort of breadth of responses. Uh, it's worth a, a read because, you know, there are some people who do seem to have a bit of a handle on what they think is going on. But I think generally the diversity of replies suggests that, you know, what we've known all along is the case, is that there isn't really one plan for one for, for any game. Mm. It's sort of 
you know, it can be different plans within the same game. And it felt like there was a slight shift in approach at half time, and it was not really one that benefited us. I mean, it, two two shots on target from each team. I mean, it wasn't a game with a, a great deal of goal with action in any by any shadow of the imagination. By any shadow of imagination, how many metaphors do I want to try and get into a sentence? There? I don't know, but um, it doesn't make any sense what I just said. Just want to hold I, my hands up. I, a I think now. people but know. It's I, because I'm confused. Yeah, I think people are, are, will understand where you're coming from there. So what you're saying is that your request for information or or soliciting of opinion on Twitter from from Arsenal fans about what they think Emery was doing provided no consensus. Like there are lots of different contrasting ideas about you know is he trying to play uh, be a team in transition? Is he trying to be a counter attack? team you know is he focused on defense because blah 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 but ultimately there wasn't one clear um opinion which many people held which seemed to be um exactly th- that one yeah okay well that not, that says a lot yeah not to my eyes anyway i mean there were you know sort of motifs that would recur you know, overlapping fullbacks pressing from the front the front is something we've done with any great deal of consistency. Um, I, you know, I almost feel like there's a, a certain extent to which, you know, Emery is happy for us to kind of surrender possession. You know, he seems to be happy for us to be, sort of sit and wait and hit teams on the counter. And yet, when you listen to his post-match press conferences, he often talks about wanting more control, about wanting more possession. So it is really difficult. I kind of defy anybody to see clearly uh, a parallel between what he says he wants to do and what he does. And that's why I think it's so difficult to unpick. I I find that confusing as well, that there's a lot of stuff that he says, which I I read and go, okay, but then I don't see it on the pitch or I don't see it in terms of our performances. I mean, I thought the the pre-game comments where he said, uh, he was talking about defensive improvement and he was talking about, you know, I want us to be a competitive team defensively and offensively, but above all, the first characteristic for us is to be offensive, to have the ball and control the matches, which is great. Like, that's not a philosophy that too many people could argue with, right? But then you look at the execution of that on the pitch and you think, well, we had two shots on target at home against Bournemouth. How does that reflect a team whose first characteristic is is trying to be offensive? How do we tally that with um, the the service or complete lack of service that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang got yesterday? This is one of the hottest strikers in the world right now, and he got literally no service for 93 minutes yesterday. And the one pass that he did get when he hit the post, he was offside. So it's it's hard to tally those things. And then he spoke afterwards about the 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 second half where he talked about how we we lost confidence and here's what he said here let me just see if i can if i can find it here one second um the second half was a good opportunity to keep our confidence to get better with the ball the combinations controls stopping their actions with the ball in the second half uh we lost a bit of that confidence we've a lot of young players and we need to also take experience, take minutes and know that difficulty inside the pitch, which is a bit mangled. But basically what he's saying is we have a lot of young players, hence there's inexperience in the team. And that sort of prevented us from controlling the game. And I'm thinking, mm. well, OK, but Saka is the only really inexperienced player in that starting lineup. 
He was the only one of the what you would consider the true youngsters, and I, you know, I'm not really including Genduzzi in that because he is a first team regular and has had a, f- a full season of first team football under his belt, even though he's a, he's only 20 years of age. Mm. And then I'm thinking, well, if you're identifying that as the problem, why are you throwing on Martinelli for Pepe and Willock, who players I like? I'm not, I'm not. Um, uh, arguing against their quality or their inclusion, but if you're identifying inexperience as a problem um, as to why we couldn't control the game in the second half, surely putting on more inexperience, relative inexperience, only only exacerbates that. It's weird. Kind of, but then I also think, I mean, who else can he bring on there, really? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not... That's all we have. Yeah, I get it. I get it, but you know... I mean, with the exception of Mesut Ozil, which is a separate discussion, I suppose. Well, I don't want to have that discussion today because we've we've done it to death. Exactly. But like, you know, if you want to make a change, if if you're looking at Pepe and thinking he doesn't give you the best defensive contribution, you've only got teenagers, really, who can come on for him. Um, Mm. And so, you know, what what else can he do there? I mean, I, I... that he would rather have Henrik Mkhitaryan and Alex Iwobi. He would rather have them, but he doesn't have them. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I don't sort of blame him for bringing young players on because I think actually they they do sort of make more defensive contribution than some of the more experienced players. Yeah, I don't blame him for bringing them on at all. But what I do not take exception to, but I just worry a little bit about why are you pointing the finger at them after a game where the second half was just so poor, you can't blame it on the young players. Like, that's that doesn't seem fair to me. I know he's not necessarily blaming them, but he's sort of, you know, pointing the finger a little bit at our inexperience, and that's why we can't control the game. But, you know, in 90 minutes, we didn't really uh, make any chances for, for Aubameyang, for our main striker. So I think the issue goes beyond young players. It could be, you know, it's probably a factor, but it doesn't seem right to me to sort of highlight that as one of the main reasons. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think I think there is a bit more merit in it in that I think at one point in the game we had Willock, Ganduzi, Martinelli and Saka all on the pitch. And, you know, I know Ganduzi's played plenty of football last season, but that is that is an inexperienced quartet of players. And I think that Maybe that maybe that slightly impedes your capacity to control a game. Mm. I mean, I do think that, you know, when I look at the starting 11, uh, I still think that is a good enough 11 to be creating more chances than they do against. I really do think that. I kind of irrespective of who's in and who's out and whatever you think of Granite Xhaka or whatever you think of Kolasinac, I still think... The, the capacity is there in that 11 players to do more than we did. I agree. I agree with that. You yeah. know, I didn't, I didn't look, I didn't really have any issue with the starting lineup because in the, in the preview, I was talking about how, you know, at least one of Sabias or Willock had to come into the midfield and it was probably going to be at the expense of Torreira because we know that he is going to play Xhaka and we know that he's going to play Genduzi. Um, Mm-hmm. But it's it just I I find it hard to to as I said last week to to connect and I find it hard not to worry a little bit about the about the performances you know I'm I'm pleased very pleased with the results very pleased that we're in um, we're in third place in the Premier League going into the interlull off the back of a win 
Um, you know, there are things that you can look forward to as well, because I think after the interlull, we're going to look at Bellerin being back on a regular basis, Tierney being included on a regular basis, holding, competing for a, a spot at centre half on a regular basis. So those are things which are, are positive about, about you know, what's to come and the way that it might impact our team. And I go back to what we talked about last week where I said, you know, we have this run of fixtures against relatively, and I, you know, put the word in inverted commas, relatively, um, what's, I'm not going to say easy, it's not easy at all, but but less difficult op- opposition than we've had. Winnable games. Winnable, winnable games. games. So, yeah, what you would consider on paper winnable games for Arsenal. Um, and we have to see how we, we come through those. I just feel like there's a, there's a familiarity to what we're seeing now that that goes back to last season. Like, I don't see, cup games aside, and we can talk about those if you want, but, you know, I think there are, there are different reasons why those games are a little more, um, the players play with a bit more freedom. You know, the, the, the football at Premier League level has not really got any better since last season. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. And there's a massive disparity between the cup football and the Premier League football. And I think we have to, you know, they always say at the base level, isn't it? That's the the true assessment of a team. And I know our league position is all right, but we're not producing the performances in that competition. I mean, one thing that struck me yesterday is, you know, we have a lot of hope pinned on these fullbacks. And I think with good reason, because they're good players and they will add another dimension. But it strikes me that last season we were getting those fullbacks in behind, say someone like Kalasinac, a lot more regularly than we are this year. You know, if yeah. you think of last season, how many times Kalasinac got to the byline and pulled it back? I mean, it, it almost became a joke, a, a meme. It was happening so regularly. Yeah. And, uh, granted, his delivery when he got there wasn't the best, but it isn't happening this year. And I'm trying to sort of work out why that is. It's because we've got a very different sort of front three. It's a front three who I guess are more principally attackers than midfielders. I mean, you know, a lot of fans will probably never think they would ever think this, but I think we'd potentially miss someone like Alex Iwobi, who is has that connective capacity on the flanks. You know, when I look at Saka, I think he's really exciting, really dangerous, but he's a left footer playing on the left who... His, his tendency isn't so much to get, drive inside mm. and and play in a, a fullback on the overlap. And I think with Pepe, there's a more natural balance with Bellerin. But even so, I think he's someone who who wants to get in the box himself rather than than feed that wide man. Yeah. So it will be very interesting to see how those partnerships develop because even that you know seems to have slightly faded away since last season. Isn't one of the key differences? that we're playing with a back four as opposed to a back three and playing with fullbacks as opposed to wingbacks. Yes. You know, because it was sort of later in the season, in the second half of the season, when when that whole Kalasinac thing became true. what it was. So maybe that's that's playing into it. The players maybe are being told to deliver deliver the ball quicker into the box. Uh, there is, you know, there are players in front of him. You know, Kalasinac was kind of... Um, you know, the, the the ostensible left wing back, but left winger at times as well. That's a really good point. Although I would sort of suggest that if you've got Genduzi and Shaka in front of that back four, you can almost afford in some games to have those fullbacks playing as wing. I, I don't want to go crazy and cavalier and leave our defence too exposed, but 
you know, that I think if you're an attacking team, that's something that you should be able to do. Mm. Well, look, you know, I think this is going to be this is going to be an issue um, until such time as we start to see better performances. And hopefully those will come with those players that we've got coming back. Um, I just my, my concern is that if we keep playing like this and if we only have two shots at home against two shots on target, rather at home against Bournemouth, there are teams that are going to take advantage of that that sort of paucity of creativity that that exists at this moment in time and they're going to score goals I mean there was a there was a moment early in the second half where I think we really really got away with one when when Wilson went around Leno I don't know why he didn't shoot I know yeah. he, he cut it back and and what have you but having done all that hard work I was surprised he didn't shoot he should have shot and I think he would have scored if he had so you know there was there's that that goes back to that 22 game unbeaten run last season where we said look it's great that we're winning the points are fantastic the unbeaten run is fantastic but ultimately it's not sustainable to play in a way which allows the opposition the the number of chances that 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 we we gave them during that period and ultimately that came back to bite us in the arse towards the end of the season so it's this the the familiarity of of our performances versus results thing that just makes me worry because you know top 4 is is crucial this season and and look we're we're we are where we are and you can't complain about where we are in the table and you can't complain about a win and you can't complain about a clean sheet but i do really think that there is a discussion to be had about the way you play um you can't just sort of say well we won and that's it I mean, if you can, if that's the way you want to um, go about it, then great, by all means, do it. But I don't think it does anyone any service if you if you overlook or ignore things which clearly aren't quite right at this moment in time. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? I think people are prepared to think like that at different points in the season. You know, like when it gets to the end of the season, I think even under Arsene Wenger, we'd have periods where it's like, well, we got the result. You know, we were conservative. We didn't play well, but we got the result and, you know, we needed it to get top four or whatever it might be. Or even if you're, it's not saying we're going to be faced with this season, but if you're in the title race, you know, you can be like, well, you know, at a certain point, it just becomes a results game. But I think at this stage of the season, People are looking for more than that. They're looking for signs of development, right? And yeah. It's always this period of the season. I mean, quite often, uh, the team that wins the league plays its best football between August and November. And after that, it just becomes about kind of grinding it out and it being a, a bit of a slog. Even Pep Guardiola's Manchester City teams have been a bit like that. They'll have a great period in the early start of the season and then just sort of become a bit of a machine. And I suppose this is the bit where we're supposed to be we're supposed to be playing well and sort of having a bit of freedom and expressing yeah. ourselves, but we're not there. Yeah. Also, isn't there this sort of thing where people will go, "Yeah, but it's the start of the season." You know, we're 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 just getting our players back. You know, we're building a bit of form, etc., mm. etc. Et so there is that kind of there True. is that kind of I'm not saying excuse making, but but mitigation for for the lack of performances where you could say new players are settling in. It's the start of the season, injuries, fixture list, all of those things where people can can sort of rationalize a lack of performance. And I feel like we're we're two months into the season now. We're going to come back and it's going to be almost November 
And I think at this point, as you head into December, the busy festive period, you know, a, a, a long period without any international breaks, I think it's there where you need to be producing performances because you can't keep grinding. We are grinding, um, and that's good. It's a good quality to have, and you can talk about, you know, how it, it, it illustrates, you know, a certain character or backbone or whatever it might be. But you you have to at some point. I just think that you give yourself a much better chance of achieving what you want to achieve if you can play good football on a regular, consistent basis. Because we had this debate, didn't we, last last week about style and do you only like Arsenal with good football? And it's not really about about being entertained. Of course, we all love to be entertained. And if we could if we could play with flicks and tricks and move the ball from back to front and score amazing goals, we all love that. And we all love to be entertained. Every football fan does. But it, it comes down to me that just the best chance to finish in the top four and get ourselves back into the Champions League will come if we are a team that can attack well, that can defend well, that can control games. And that's where I that's where I look at it, and that's why that's what my sort of desire um, for Arsenal is to be a team like that. I don't expect us to be world beaters or Harlem Globetrotters or, or anything like that, but simply to to demonstrate a measure of consistency and cohesion in how we play the game. And so far, I don't see it this season. I hope it's something that we'll see in the weeks to come but but so far I don't see it and and that's a bit of a worry for me yes I agree with that and I think if you look at the matches that we've won it's a narrow margin I don't even think you need to be a genius of sort of sort of underlying metrics to understand it I mean I think every Premier League win we've had has been by a single goal and when your matches are that close sooner or later the luck's going to go against you you know and that's a little Mm. bit what happened last season I think well, almost exactly what happened last season. Yeah. So, look, it is a thing. Whether people like it or not, performances have got to have got to get a bit better, and hopefully, hopefully, they will. Um, so, let's accept that that's an issue that we have to solve, but one which hopefully some of the uh, returning players can can help us with. Um, mm. Positives from yesterday. Um, I thought Callum Chambers was good. I thought he was good. I think he deserves a lot of credit because he's playing in a position that's not his favourite position, but he, you know, is knuckling down and making a really decent fist of it. I thought he was very good, made a very important intervention in his own penalty box to prevent them equalising. He was definitely a positive for me. I'm trying to think. I mean, I thought the centre-halves were okay for the most part. Yeah, not particularly troubled, but, you know, uh, they they did seem to do um, quite well. Louise obviously scored a goal, which is which is great. Yep. Uh, I think the celebration showed he's, he's very well regarded within the dressing room. I think whatever fans might make of him, he's obviously a popular character. I mean, I actually think Socrates and Louise... Uh, if you look at Old Trafford and then you look at the Bournemouth game, have I'm not going to say they've turned a corner, but there's certainly been an, an improvement from them. Um, and I think the team as a whole has been a little bit better defensively, but I think it has, uh, you know, almost reduced our attacking threat in the process. Yeah, I mean, it may well be down to the fact that, you know, you look at what, what happened to Manchester United yesterday and how, how just how goddamn awful they are. Mm. And Bournemouth, with the greatest of respect, while they were better in the second half, were were 
we're nowhere near as good as Bournemouth have been in the past. You know, we've had some games against them which which haven't gone our way, and we know that they're a team that are capable of playing some some pretty decent football. They they weren't that yesterday, so I think that did help the centre halves. To be honest, um, yes, that's a, a, it's only fair to to point that out. I mean, I, I guess I take it as a positive that we that we did finish with all those young players on the field, whatever, you know, people might say about that. I think, you know, that is a good thing for this club. And we, we are blooding these youngsters in the Premier League and they need that experience. So that was something I took a, a bit of satisfaction from, even though, you know, if it's sort of born out of circumstance, but I thought that was good. Yes. Yeah, look, the more minutes these guys get, the better they're going to be or the more they're going to develop. So, the, so it is promising. Um I mean, I have to be honest, it's not easy to reel off positives about this game, though, is it? I mean, it no. wasn't a good game. No, it wasn't a good game of football. It was a bad game of football, I would say. Um, it was a, an observation I made more than once on the live blog yesterday. It just wasn't a good game of football. Um, and I'm not sure it's one that, you know, as a game on its own, it doesn't merit a great deal of discussion. There aren't too many talking points. We scored an early goal. Um, we we failed to capitalise on that goal. We rode our luck a little bit, but ultimately we came out with a win and, and that's it. But it's only within the context of of the other games as part of how we assess this team over the course of, of this season so far that it that it sort of takes takes on a bit more weight, if you like. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, what it does for our league positioning is good. You know, I, I feel like if we're going to get the top four, we're probably going to be as reliant on the failures of others as we are on our own uh, strengths. Mm. And so, you know, from that perspective, it was a positive weekend. But this wasn't the performance where the team turned a corner. It wasn't the performance where the team clicked. And, you know, as someone who sort of has urged for a bit of time and a bit of patience, I would say... I would have to admit that in this match, there was not a great deal uh, to restore anyone's faith in Unai Emery. I mean, it was it was pretty insipid stuff. And uh, I'm very grateful for the three points, like everybody. But yeah, I couldn't really get excited about this match or, or this performance. Mm. I did enjoy the comment on Twitter from someone yesterday when I said, you know, uh, in the post-match tweet that, you know, our football was was quite poor. And he went, quite poor? I wanted to dig my own eyes out with a spoon. Um, <laughs> which, you know, it was maybe exaggerating things slightly. But there is, you know, there is, um, there is a very considerable um, proportion of people who are just not enjoying the football at mm. the moment. Like... Mm. We're 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 sort of lurching from one thing to another because I think everybody enjoyed the game against Standard Liège, everybody enjoyed the game against Nottingham Forest. Um, you know this. That's very true. Yeah, you know. So there there, there have been there have been uh, things which have been positive about the way we played this season. And you know, when, when I said that um, Emery can't get what he's getting out of the teams for the Europa League games or the Cup games from the Premier League team, there were just a million replies um, with pictures of Freddie Jumberg and, and what have you. But, uh, you know, the, the Premier League is the bread and butter. That's the thing. People know that the 38 games of the Premier League are what will really properly define our season. That's, I think, where you know, where that reaction comes from. Yeah. 
And I also think, I mean, I personally am like, I don't really buy into this idea that Freddie is <laughs> masterminding the cup games. I just don't know anything legitimate about that, to be honest. I understand why the sentiment and why people are like, you know, why people might want to believe that, but I don't think it has any bearing on reality. And what is difficult is, I mean, look, obviously, why should we be surprised that football fans enjoyed the, the games where their teams won four and five nil? more than the ones where they didn't. Of course they did. But it's a stylistic thing as well. And it, there's just a freedom about those performances. Now, I do think there is a big gulf in quality. I mean, I saw some people saying, well, look, you know, Standard Liège are second in Belgium. So, you know, does that make them better than Bournemouth? And I'm like, no, I don't think it does. I don't think it does. I really do think the Premier League is a really... Man City are. They got beat by Wolves yesterday. Um, no one apart from Liverpool, it seems, can make this competition look easy. But we're mm. making it look quite difficult. Yeah, I do wonder how Bournemouth, a Bournemouth team that played, you know, the way they did yesterday would fare against a team like Standard Liège. I do wonder. I, I'm not sure it's well, as cut a good and question. dry. You know, but of course, we're, yeah, we're dealing in like what ifs and these sort of weird abstract things that we have no <laughs> we've no way of proving or disproving but you know we can also I mean, uh, yeah go on i'm not suggesting that Liège are, bad, uh, are inherently a bad side i just feel like there is an intensity about the premier league games that does exist in the europa league that's more what it is it's less a qualitative comment on those teams and more a, a comment on the way teams seem to approach those fixtures i mean i felt like maybe because it's a group stage game and they ultimately know it's not going to have that much impact on whether or not they qualify they've sort of written it off perhaps liege come and they're not you know they they don't come in in quite the same way as many premier league teams do yeah what did i wonder what they did this weekend standard liege yeah. So yeah. They beat Bournemouth 10-0. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that is an interesting at... question. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, and, and They drew 2-2 with Royal Antwerp away from home. I mean, do you think if we put out the 11 who played standard Liège, they would have rolled Bournemouth over? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think if... Look, it's impossible to say. What I do think, though, is if, if we had played against Bournemouth with the same kind of positivity that we played against Liège, I think we might well have have won the game yesterday more convincingly. Mm. So I, I wonder if there is this like psychological barrier within, within, you know, the team's head when it comes to Premier League. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe. I mean... We've talked about a psychological barrier with the team when it comes to playing away from home. So I wouldn't put it past the team having that yeah. when it comes to different competitions. It could be psychological, but equally it could be tactical. And it could be that... This is my other hunch, maybe, is that Unai Emery's preparation for Premier League games is maybe that bit more diligent and instructive and therefore potentially cautious. That, that might be the case too. Might be. Might be. Um, anyway, look, we don't have any more Premier League action for a couple of weeks because uh, of the international break. And, uh, you know, when we come back, we've got Sheffield United away. Um, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how we how we approach that one. Um, but look, yeah. yeah. I mean, that doesn't... I don't have confidence against Sheffield United, I have to say, because they're not a bad team. 
and I feel like that feels like a match that we'll struggle in. Uh, but then they all do to an extent. Yes, they all do. And until such time as they don't, they all will, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, l- like you say, we're, we're past the beginning of the season now. That excuse is gone. We're not yet into the end of the season where it just becomes about churning out results. So I suppose this period between now, when we resume after the international break and Christmas, is going to be the time when, mm. if there's going to be any time, we might produce some performances. All right. Well, look, I think we've done as much as we can possibly do in part one on that that game from yesterday. Um, yeah. We'll leave it there. We'll take a break. We'll come back and answer your questions and more in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions you sent to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog, and also on the Arsblog Discord server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. Just to let you know that a little bit later on today, Monday, depending on when you're listening to this, we've got a second podcast coming for you in which I speak to Ian Wright about. Uh, his recent reunion and interview with Dennis Bergkamp. You saw the pictures on uh, Instagram, James. So, yeah, yeah, I, it was very exciting indeed. I have to say to see them together again, mm. and uh, yeah, looking forward to that interview and looking forward to hearing from him about it on the Oscars. Yeah, it's good. He talks a bit, uh, quite a bit about Eddie and Ketty as well. You know, he's been doing some work with with Eddie and mentoring him a little bit in terms of his, you know, uh, development as a striker. So that's really interesting too, and some of the young players. But uh, you know, it won't surprise you to know that he absolutely loves Dennis Bergkamp, and uh, we get into that uh, in quite some detail in the in the podcast. That will be coming out for you later this afternoon on all the usual channels and places and, and what have you. Um, I'm going to ask a question first. It comes from Facebook. It comes from Robin Love. And he says, does it surprise you how much Arsenal's youth players and their involvement in the first team has gone unnoticed by media and pundits? Everyone is quick to lavish Chelsea praise for being forced into using younger players. Good question, and I think a very valid point. I mean, Chelsea, you know, you can't separate what they're doing from their transfer ban. Uh, And were it not for that transfer ban, I don't know if 
say, Tammy Abraham would be getting all these chances. On the other hand, I'm not sure Arsenal have a young player who has seized their opportunity quite as dramatically as Abraham has. I mean, he's scoring a lot of goals in the Premier League and I think he's really exceeded expectations in that regard. Um, So I can understand a bit of buzz and a, a bit of hype about that. The big difference between those players, Mount, Abraham and the likes of Saka is they've already been out on loan. They've already mm. gained experience. They're they're further ahead in their development. You know, Arsenal are throwing in kids who have only played academy football to date. You know, that's true of... Uh, of, of Saka, Willock, Willock. Saka. I mean, Martinelli's played at a, lo- a low level in Brazil, but, you know, he's still very young, very callow. So... Interesting, isn't it, that the one guy who did go out on loan and who got a year's experience in yeah. the Bundesliga, Reese Nelson, is sort of, you know, on the... on. On the outskirts a little bit when it comes to that group of young players. Absolutely, absolutely, it's really interesting, and he seems to be certainly behind Saka in the in the pecking order. Although I do think once Kieran Tierney comes into the team, we might see a bit of a shift there. I think there's a bit of hope there for Nelson because mm. I really like Saka, but I think Nelson is someone who connects better with a fullback. Um, and they, you know, yeah. creates that overlap. They more. did very well, didn't they? They worked well together against um, Liège. You know, they had a nice little combination and the goals came, you know, a couple of the goals came from down that side and Nelson was involved. So, so yeah, Yeah. that's something. Mm. I think, I think he can do that job, that sort of Iwobi-esque job, maybe slightly better. But uh, yeah, I, I think, I think, is it going unnoticed? Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But I don't really mind that, to be honest. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. Um, I think we do tend to, to... Well, certainly I do, you know, stay within my, my Arsenal bubble to an extent when it comes to um, when it comes to reading about what's going on. So obviously I've mm. seen people talking about Chelsea's players, but but I haven't, yeah, I, it doesn't bother me that there, there aren't too many people uh, writing or talking about the, the young players coming through at Arsenal. And I also think if we are going to draw some parallels between the two situations, you know, uh, Lampard is being forced to use young players because of the transfer ban. I also think Emery to an extent, is not necessarily being forced, but but the club dealt him a hand this summer yeah, by, I, I, by taking away Iwobi, by, by selling Iwobi, by moving on Mkhitaryan. Um, so, he does, as you said earlier on, he doesn't really have much to fall back on. They took away that safety net of, of experience um, from him, so he doesn't have any choice but to use young players. I think that's, that's very a- deliberate as well. Yeah, that's a good point. They slightly took away a, a crutch there from Emery. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think that has been, it's a point we've made before, the overwhelming positive of the season is that we are finally making use of our academy. We are blooding those young players. And, you know, I, I think expecting them to play or be part of a great football team this season is is probably unrealistic. It's going to be a couple of years before they really find their feet in the Premier League. But, I'm looking forward to that time because I do think there's massive potential there. I mean, someone like Saka, you know, the, really the sky's the limit in terms of what he what he could be. Um, and, and if it means they're a bit out of the spotlight and they're not getting premature England call-ups that didn't do any favours for people like Callum Chambers or Carl Jenkinson, then that's absolutely fine with me. Mm. I don't, you know, I, I saw that... Uh, Reese Nelson, Joe Willock and Eddie Nketiah are all in the England under-21 squad for the international break. That's perfect. That's the level they should be at uh, and they don't need to be hurried in their development. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, here's a question that comes from the Discord, and it's from Emmanuel Lane. And Emmanuel says, I was lucky enough to be in the right spot to follow the Arsenal warm-up yesterday, and I spent a lot of my time looking at Pepe. He spent quite some time alone shooting at an empty goal. He only late joined the group. There was a bit of a sense of loneliness and isolation. Late in the game, I could not stop thinking there must be something going on with him. I wondered if you and Gunnerblog had a view with James being in the stadium too. Are we piling on Pepe too easily and purely based on his transfer fee? What should we do? Is there an issue with the player or is there an issue with the system? Well, I, I'm not sure that people are piling on him per se, are they? I mean, there are concerns given the fact that we paid £72 million for him that, that he hasn't really delivered mm. um, yeah. you know if you want to step back and if you want to you know uh, look at it in black and white terms he delivered the match winning assist yesterday now I know it was from a corner but you know our set piece delivery at times this season has been has been um, what's the word I'm looking for a horrendous bag of stinking shit I think is what I was going to say. So when you do have somebody who's put in a decent ball and Louise met it well, it was a good header, you know, I think we have to give him some credit for that. But clearly in open play, he is struggling to make the kind of impact that we would like. I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, Whether it's settling in, whether he doesn't feel quite integrated yet, whether it's the system, the formation, the way we play. I mean, look, I I can't help but think the way that we're playing at this moment in time is, is a factor, certainly. You know, um, if you're a, a top quality forward like Obama Yang and you can make the most of a half chance, you know, you're going to look a bit more effective. But but yesterday, Obama Yang had a very, very quiet game simply because we couldn't get the ball to him. And I think part of that is is just our, our approach and our mindset. Um, you know, what Emery says about wanting our first characteristic to be offensive, it's it's hard to marry that with what we see on the pitch. And I think perhaps Pepe is, is struggling a little bit because of that. So, you know, as I've said recently... I, he needs time. He deserves time. It's way too early to start making definitive judgments about him. And I think if we, I'm not speaking on behalf of everybody, but if there are uh, a lot of people who have concerns about the way that the team is playing, surely that should provide some kind of mitigation as to Pepe's per- individual performances, if you like. So if you accept yeah. that that thing is wrong, is it not fair to say that it might well be having an impact on on him? Absolutely, and I think I'm sure everyone agrees with that. I I actually know what Emmanuel's talking about because I watched the warm up very closely mm. yesterday too. And you know, you don't want to make inferences about social dynamics or anything like that from just watching a warm up. But he was quite a solitary figure. You know, he was peeing free kicks at the goal on his own. And you know, if he was playing well, I guess you'd attribute that to a steely focus. And you know, he's in the zone, but. He wasn't really someone who was sort of laughing and joking and looked happy in that group. And it was the same just before kickoff. He was sort of stood slightly off to his own, on his own. And, you know, maybe he is still going through a process of adaptation. You know, he's a boy who grew up in France, played all his life in France to this point. I think he always, speaking to people who knew him at Lille, he always had his family around him. Uh, and it is a... You know, it is a change to come and live in England and play in England, and potentially that is impacting upon him. Uh, the other thing that I have observed about him and spoken to people about this week is that I spoke to two Lille fans, and I wrote about this this week, and they said, 
he's not a player who you want to have the ball in a possession-based team. He's someone who's great when he's you know on the break. And the sight I think of when I think of Pepe playing for Arsenal, typically, is him picking up the ball 35 yards from goal with about four defenders in front of him. Yeah. And asking him to beat, you know, to dribble through... 10 men like he's Diego Maradona and I don't think that is what he is I think he's someone who exploits space and we're not getting that supply to him swiftly enough yeah I think that's I think that's fair and then you have to question that uh, you know ask the question if if that's not what he's good at mm. how you know do we do we tailor our entire approach to to get the best out of him in a way. That means that you're going to sit back and defend and be a counter-attacking team, but that sort of goes against, A, what Emery says about what what he wants his team to be, right? And also what a club like Arsenal should be, I think. You know, in terms of, in terms of how you approach games against the vast majority of the opposition in the Premier League, I think a club like Arsenal should be going out to dictate the games, control the games, and and dominate the ball as much as possible. Mm. So it's a real, yeah, it's a it's a tricky situation. Well, I, I almost wonder if, I mean, when I try to think about what I think Emery might be trying to do, and then I think about the fact that we signed Pepe, I do wonder if contained within that is sort of the clue, and that actually Emery's for all his talk about possession and control, part of his intent is to make Arsenal a, you know, a team that's more prepared to not take the initiative, to sit in the block. And then, and then you look at Saka, Aubameyang and Pepe, that's a front three that's absolutely ideal to do that. I'm not for a second suggesting we're doing it well, but I do wonder if that might be sort of the closest thing to a discernible plan. I mean, this is a quote from one of the Lille fans I spoke to. I think that Pepe needs more space. He doesn't really have any influence in the game if his team have possession of the ball. Where he hurts the opposing team is when his team recuperates the ball and then projecting very quickly to the front. So, mm. you know, that's not a player who you want to have, you know, in, I don't know, the Mesut Ozil role, you know, trying to be the creator against a, a packed defence. Do you think uh, Pepe was the winger that Emery really wanted and I'm not saying that he's not a player that he doesn't want but was he the you know because there was this very public pursuit of Zaha, of Zaha who is a different kind of player you know well, who, the, who is yeah. happy to get the ball and run at people you know run at three or four defenders that seems to be more the kind of game that 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 he's capable of playing more than Pepe yes I think that's fair I think that Emery is a big admirer of Zaha and the fact that he sort of went public with that and spoke about him very glowingly, I think, after Palace beat us has always led me to believe he might have been Emery's first choice. I had heard that the the pursuit of Pepe goes back a long way, that, you know, we had, we're interested in him in the new year, that, you know, from sort of January, February time, things were pretty serious with Pepe. So, But maybe there's a bit of a divergence between what the coach wanted and what the... What the uh, what the management wanted, but I, I'm not so, so sure because Zaha could also play that game on the counter. And what I think, looking at the way we set up, is that maybe that's what Emery envisioned. Certainly away from home, 
that's you know and and the way we played at Liverpool uh, to a certain extent at Watford it was sort of that thing of can we spring can we spring from D <laughs> but we can't well or no. we haven't anyway and and I think that where that's breaking down is in the midfield where the transition is not swift enough and also we're not we don't really have the defensive security to be able to play that game very well I don't think you know that's sort of contingent on the idea that you can be solid at the back uh which I don't think we necessarily do. Mm. And it's interesting with Pepe. I mean, he is a very, very different player to Theo Walcott. Very different. He's a much better dribbler, I would say, and his all-round technique is definitely superior. But I think that his use of space... You know, I think Pepe's more similar to Aubameyang than he is similar to Alexis Sanchez. Alexis Sanchez was that guy who would drop deep, pick it up, look to play, make... And I'm, I think that's what we're sort of asking Pepe to do, and I'm not sure it's what he is. Mm. Uh, and that's, you know, that that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think there's... I think I understand that people are frustrated with the player, but I think also you've got to look at the system. And, and also, he's moved to a much bigger team. I mean, Arsenal, as a big... You know, we're probably going to have more possession in games, as a rule, than Lille accustomed to so stylistically he's got an adaptation to make so it, I can understand all the reasons it's not quite clicking yet yeah um, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little concerned you know I think as Arsenal fans we're inherently defensive of our players and particularly new signings we love new signings right we make them player of the month every August and we want to be proud and happy with them but I think you know it's not uh it's not treason to look at the situation and say there's work to be done there in terms of his adaptation. Mm. Well, look, you know, I, I thought the substitution was maybe a little bit odd yesterday, you know. Um, yeah, well, I'm not I think sure. another thing about Pepe is I'm not sure he offers a great deal defensively, I, I have to say. No, but it's 60 minutes at home against Bournemouth. Surely your focus should be on... Let's get another yeah. goal. I was surprised. Let's put it like I don't know that that surprised. will have done much for his confidence. No. And he doesn't look confident to me. Mm. I mean, look, he had an assist yesterday and we haven't mentioned he probably should have had a penalty as well. Yeah, uh, I thought I thought it could well have been a penalty, yeah. And then you're looking at two assists and his, his productivity. I mean, there's a stat floating around. In his last 30 home league matches, now granted most of those for Lille, he's involved in 28 goals, 16 goals, 12 assists. He seems to be a productive player, you know, and I think if you get him into the penalty box, he'll win a few of those penalties because he's, he's got trickery, he's got mm. speed. But in open play, you know, it's telling his only goal is a penalty. We're talking about a corner yesterday. In open play, it's just not quite happening for him at the mm. moment. And his best, what was his best match for Arsenal? For me, it was that Liverpool game. That was the performance where I was like, wow, we've really got something here. And how were we playing? We were playing on the break. We yeah. were playing, releasing him into space. But that was that. That felt like crumbs of comfort on a day when we were absolutely rubbish. You know what I mean? I do see your point, but I, you know, yeah. But I, I would still say that's his most eye-catching mm. performance. I, I think it's something as well that does put a bit bit of pressure on Emery too. A bit more pressure. Not that he needs it, but it's true in that Arsenal spent 72 million pounds on Nicolas Pepe to great fanfare 
And this was, you know, when, when Josh Kroenke said, what would you say to fans? I'd say, be excited. They didn't splash £72 million, Arsenal, under the Kroenkes, for the £72 million guy to be an albatross around our neck. You know, we've kind of got... Um, we've got one of those already that we're not using. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's incumbent on Emery to to get performances out of Pepe. And if he doesn't, I think it just it just ramps things up. Um, we'll, you look, we'll see how he goes after the uh, after the interlull. I guess he's going away, is he? Did the Ivory I would Coast think so, have with games? Ivory Coast. I don't know if 100%, but he's he's generally involved in their squads. Let's see. Ivory Coast International fixtures. Let's have a look and see if they've got any um, coming up. Um, not until November, it seems. So maybe... So not. Um, Okay, maybe they do. I don't know. This is very confusing on ESPN, so I'm going to look away and it's making my head hurt. Okay, um, don't worry. Don't worry. I, mean, well, I also think that he's maybe a little bit unfortunate in that, you know, Lacazette has been out. So he's the only other real senior attacker in this squad. Uh, and he's not even particularly senior himself. What is he, 23-24? But aside from Aubameyang, you know, we've got kids, really, in those positions. So... You know, it has sort of been, there has been a bit more expectation maybe. If Lacazette was there banging in the goals, maybe we yeah. wouldn't be looking at Pepe as much this early on. But, mm. you know, inevitably we now are. Okay, here's a couple of questions about one man. Um, Dazzy Pepper on the Discord says, Florentino Perez calls you up right now and offers you to buy us permanently for 40 million. Do you take the offer? And I quite like this one from Fever Pitch, who's at Fever Pitch. On Twitter, fever. I like it. It's not fever pitch having converted their uh, username. Is no, it? I don't think so. Um, okay. Well, no, I don't think so. No, it's fever. I don't know if that's um, uh, a little joke about something or not. But anyway, he it's says a reference to Emery's accent. I'm well, sure. that's what I thought, but um, it may be something else. Anyway, look that aside. The question is: Sabias looks like an L. A vertical line with huge feet. Also, he kicks the ball like Bobby Perez runs, duck style. How do you feel about him now that we've seen him for a bit? He has got massive feet, you know. I have you noticed that. Message me about that. Yeah, well, I, I I had a few like tweets of people saying, "Have you seen Sabias's feet?" And I was like, well, I hadn't paid much attention to them. Emma Jarvis on Twitter, how big are Sabias's feet? They look enormous. They are large, but I think it's partly to do with... He's quite a curious shape. He's very slight, I think, yeah. Ceballos. He's quite gangly. Um, you know, he's got a similar body type to Canu. All all arms and legs and huge feet. Uh, would I pay £40 million for him right now? That's a difficult one, isn't it? Mm. I, I think I would, actually. I think I would on balance. Okay. Um, because I sort of think, I know, you know, th there's probably there's certainly talent there if you look at his pedigree with Spain and with Real Madrid. And I think, crazily, that's not that much money. Like, that's not an amount of money that you couldn't get back, I don't think. Mm. So, from, you know, Atletico Madrid in three years' time. So, I probably would. Uh, what would you do? I'm not sure I would pay 40 million 
for him. I like him. I like I like the way he plays, and I think he he's he's somebody who fits that profile of a modern central midfielder, and also somebody who who perhaps I'm a little bit surprised hasn't hasn't had a game maybe in the final third on the left because he has played there for Spain. Um, I just haven't quite seen enough yet to to justify that kind of a price tag. If it was twenty million, I think I'd be well in. Yeah. Yeah, I think we could definitely meet in the middle of 30, I think. Mm. 40 does... 40, I mean, it's a big number, but it's not far off Alex Awobi, you know, so... That's true, yeah. In context, it's not a, a vast amount of money. I, but look, uh, I I thought he was pretty good against uh, Bournemouth, Ceballos. I thought he had some nice moments. I like... He's quite tigerish, isn't he? For a player who you think of as sort of a flair player and who has got that very light frame, he's not afraid to put his foot in and to get stuck in and close down. I like that about him. Mm. Um, I'm still very much Team Willock, I have to say. I still think that Joe Willock is sort of the missing <laughs> the missing link in this Arsenal team, but uh, I might be I might be wrong about. Every time I see the starting eleven, I think he's going to play more advanced than he does. Yeah, I kind of find I find myself assuming oh well he'll be the link between the midfield and the attack but then I don't think that's just I just don't think that's his natural game I think he wants to play deeper than that and and that informs what he does mm. he yeah if we had I suppose another question is if we had paid 40 million for him this summer how would we feel about his performances today yeah you know the fact that he's a loan signing kind of means bit of a free hit in a way it's a free hit yeah, yeah so we probably don't analyze it as as close. Here's a here's a question. Um, I'll just continue with another midfield question, seeing as yeah, we're on it. Um, and he says, uh, "This is from Drago Stark, who says, did Shaka have a decent game yesterday? I find myself noticing his mistakes more, but I'm wondering whether I'm subconsciously finding reasons for him to get out of the starting lineup. Is he really as bad as a vocal part of the fan base think? It's a good question, isn't it? Because confirmation bias definitely does begin to kick in when you've kind of made up your mind about a player you see a game through that prism I mean I don't think he had a bad game I don't remember too many moments where I was like oh you know poor that was poor from Shaka I think he was the top passer in the game I think he completed 52 passes um, just having a look through the stats now to see if anything jumps out I mean ball recoveries Danny Ceballos led Granite Shaka Substantially, there were a number of clumsy fouls in midfield, which felt quite Shaka esque. I, I remember mean, a bit of chasing as well. The old chasing shirt pull made a return. Mm. Uh, I mean, that feels like it's going to be a pretty permanent fixture within his game. Uh, it wasn't. I, I don't think it was his worst game, and I don't think it was his best game. I mean, even fifty-two passes, not it's not at his most controlling level you know? no I mean you know when I was doing the player ratings on Arsblog News yesterday and you know you, you do um, give the player a rating and then you write a little comment about you know uh, their performance or, or whatever and the only thing I could just put beside his name was Shaka he was very yeah. he was Shaka um, well he didn't do one crazy thing that cost us the game so he wasn't full Shaka wasn't full yeah you never go full Shaka um yeah, look, I, yeah, I think there is an element of of confirmation bias, but I do understand why why people might like to see something different in midfield. That you know, one of the key or one of the common denominators in in the Arsenal side 
um, since Emery arrived um, has been Xhaka. And we've found midfield a difficult place to control. So, you know, if he were to try something different and give some other players a chance to see if they could exert some control in there, you'd be on board with that for a bit. But I don't think it's going to happen because he's made him his captain and that's kind of that's kind of a you know we said where the five captains thing gives him an out where he doesn't have to pick mm. Shaka I think we were kind of kidding ourselves a little bit I think we were we were the glass was half full there James well I don't think he's picking him because he's captain that's the thing I don't think he's picking him because he's captain. I think no, he's but I think the captain... Yeah, I think he, he picks him because he him. wants to pick him. But yeah, I think the yeah. captain also... I think just some of the things that he said about, you know, oh, the players voted. The players voted for Xhaka. So, you know, look, they voted. And that backs up what I think. So this is what's going to happen. Yeah, but I still can't. don't think we can put too much stock in the captaincy thing if Meza Ozil's one of the captains, you know? Uh, I think he just picked Shaka for tactical reasons. He likes Shaka as a player, and I mean, in some ways, that's more mm. that's more alarming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what about this? A bit of a change of uh, pace and subject. Wiltshire Gooner on the Discord says, "Which is more enjoyable, Man U imploding or Spurs imploding?" I think Spurs because. United is kind of continuing a theme that's been ongoing for a little while. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they this had is the, new. Yeah, they had We've the issues. We've been waiting for this. Yeah, exactly. We've been waiting for this. Um, you know, they built the new stadium and, and everything else and and things are going quite wrong for them. So that is, that is more enjoyable. Um, you know, if it was a Manchester United team that had been, you know, winning stuff for, for years and years or was as good as the Manchester United teams of the past and it was falling apart, then I think we could we could get on board with that. But but yeah, I mean they've been they've been enjoying a period of sustained um I go back to that 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 brilliant clip for uh on Soccer Saturday, wasn't it, where where um Jeff Stelling says to Paul Merson something along the lines of, you know, uh, is this the, you know, the, the greatest period of success in, mm-hmm. in Tottenham's recent history? And Merson goes, what success? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, there is that. But, you know, compared to where they were, they've been, you know, a, a regular feature in the top four, which they weren't and, and never were in the past. So from that point of view, I guess, by their very low standards, it's it's success. Um, but it would be delicious if having put all that money into a new stadium, it all just fell apart from a footballing point of view because the reality is that it affects attendances, it affects ticket sales, um, it affects sponsorships, it affects marketing deals. And when you've got a when you've got a debt the size that they have, a stadium debt, which is what twice as much as ours, more maybe, that could be ruinous. So, yeah, I'm enjoying the Tottenham one. You, same, same. I mean, United feels like more of the same, and I'll continue to lap it up. But I think for lots of reasons, the Spurs is more fun. I mean, mainly, I think it's because we're probably looking at the season thinking, well, 
are we going to win something? You know, are we going to make top four? But finishing ahead of Spurs, which for a long time we sort of took as a given, would be, you know, something to be happy about, certainly. And every defeat for them makes that more plausible. They've had this sort of brief spell of, I suppose, some superiority over us in the Premier League table. We have to admit that. But they didn't win anything in that period. And if, if they go through, you know, the most glorious period in their history without a piece of silverware, that would be great. Uh, yep. and, and, you know, if they want to sack Pochettino as well, which sounds like it might be the way it goes, again, I'm absolutely delighted for them to do that because I think he's a really good manager. Uh, so, yeah, I'd love to see it all come apart, yeah. it seems. And I guess there's probably part of me as well that's like, you know, that we went through this with the new stadium. We had to suffer the consequences and the slump and, you know, what it did to the football club. And, uh, you know, I'd like to, having sort of starting, well, no, I don't know if we have emerged from the other side of that. We're sort of slowly beginning to, but I would love to see them have to endure that as well. Yeah. Um, that would be nice. It would be nice. I, you know, people forget this. Um, while we focus on the, the things which trouble us in terms of our own team, a big, big part of being a football fan is enjoying the misery of other people. And, you know, United getting beaten yesterday was fantastic. It was really, really funny to watch, uh, you know, that United side be that bad against a team that was smashed 5-0 the week before. Mm. You know, who beat Newcastle 5-0 last week? I can't remember. Was it someone good or was it... Uh, I don't remember either. Sorry. Uh, I mean, they're, they're not a good team, Newcastle. They they lost, you know, their best player. Their player of the season, I think, for the previous year was Rondon. They didn't keep him. Uh, they lost to Leicester, didn't they? Leicester, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, speaking yeah, of Leicester, what what did you make of that uh, that challenge on, on Mo Salah? Oh, I only saw it once or twice. Right. Uh, it's it, chowdery, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, why? What did you think? I thought it was awful. I really did. I thought it was terrible. And I thought Klopp, um, who I guess, you know, some people will find annoying. I thought he was quite right after the game where he's talking about the, the, the challenge that he made. And I think Salah went off injured. It wasn't necessarily the impact of the challenge which injured him, but he got his ankle caught. I thought it was really terrible. And I was watching Match of the Day and Danny Murphy was on there and... Um, I, I tweeted about it and I said Danny Mills, which just kind of shows you how interchangeable <laughs> the terrible opinions from the Dannys are in my mind. But he was saying, well, yeah, they showed a, a, like a video of Chowdhury coming in, leaping off the ground and catching Salah on the thigh with the ball like nowhere near him. He had no intention whatsoever to play the ball. You know, it was one of those fouls where he's going, I'm taking the man because this is dangerous. I'm going to make a foul. And that's fine. We can all be, you know, um, behind a bit of cynical football. I enjoy a bit of cynical football. You know, pull a shirt or trip a guy up, whatever it is, you know. But but this was really dangerous. And Danny Murphy says, yeah, that could have been a foul. Could have been a foul. I know. Could have been. Know. What are you on about? It's absolutely crazy. Um, but anyway, I've strayed off the point, um, which was what? Newcastle and United getting beaten by by Newcastle. Um, yeah, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Um, I, I, I really enjoy it when teams I don't like lose. Mm. You know, it can mm. take me out of my my own little 
bubble of, of concern and what have you that I have for Arsenal. Um, yeah. I'm just looking at the league table now. I mean, United are six points off us. So it's and Spurs four points. So it's still a pretty compressed table at this early stage. You know, it's nothing to get too excited about. Um, it it could very quickly turn around, but mm. you've got to enjoy those days when they come. You sure uh, do. And I think you know if our if our football isn't going to be particularly inspiring, then all the more reason to to celebrate when those around us lose. Mm. Yes, yes. Um, there's a lot of people looking for some more hashtag action, potch out, all I out and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we'll save it. We'll save it. We're letting it bubble like a cauldron of goodness. We're letting it bubble <laughs> till it reaches its peak. And then we will definitely do some of those, uh, some of those hashtags for you. Uh, this one from Facebook, from Daniel Rinnell. Um, I think, who says, who is the least likable manager in the Premier League at the moment in a time without Alex Ferguson, Mourinho, Harry Redknapp, Pulis and other top contenders? Who's your least favourite, James? That's a good question, isn't it? Mm. Uh, My least favourite, I'm scanning the Premier League table right now. I know who mine is. I think, uh, go on, who's yours? I think I know who mine is as well. Pep. Yeah, that's mine too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think he's an amazing coach. I think he's a really, truly amazing football coach. Um, but as a character, he's very hard to to warm to, isn't he? Even more so than Brandon. There's a kind of gormlessness to Brandon, sure, if you know sure. what I mean. It's kind of like a bit dopey, whereas Guardiola's, guys, 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 so, so, so proud, guys. I'm so, so proud. I'm so, I'm so happy. So happy for you guys. So Believe me, I'm so, so happy. happy. Yeah, I'm so proud, so proud, so proud. Um, he, he, yeah, he's very patronising in his manner, isn't he? Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he's a bit of a dick, basically. I think, you know, Pep is the most annoying opposition manager. It's an interesting point. There aren't that many hateable managers in this Premier League. I think if we were more competitive we might hate some of them a bit more Maybe. because it sort of sparks that it sparks that rivalry you know but you look at yeah. you look at guys like i mean you can't hate roy hodgson sean dyche nobody's a big fan of sean dyche and the and the way that he plays but you know uh, he doesn't come close to to some of the others and then you're looking at guys Pelle- you can't hate pellegrini can you he's just a nice old man yeah He's just a nice old guy. Ask Alan Pardew about him. You know, Steve Bruce. Okay, look, we had our battles with Steve Bruce when he was a United player down the years and a few run-ins with him uh, during his time as manager. But, but you know, basically he seems like a, a nice enough kind of a guy. And then there's loads of players, fellas, you barely even know. Yeah. You hardly know them. Eddie Howe seems like a nice guy. He seems like a nice man. He would um, he would tend to your garden if you were his next door neighbor, and you're going on holidays during the summer. He'd make sure that your plants were watered. That's the kind of guy that Eddie Howe is. I agree. Have you seen much of Sheffield United's manager Chris Wilder? No, I haven't. I haven't. He he can be a divisive figure. Mm. So we look maybe, forward to that in a couple look, of yeah, weeks. Exactly. We've got that to come. We've got that to come. <laughs> All right. Well, look, have you got any more there? 
not really. I mean, they're all sort of, you know, the, the others I had, I think, were largely things like, oh, what are we going to do about the performances and stuff yeah. that we've talked about, you know? I know, yeah, and there's I, a lot of stuff we've gone over, yeah. Uh, and I think, understandably, uh, it's either that or there's a bit of alternative of, like, you know, do we deserve more credit? We're getting the results. And, and I think what we're realising is that the truth sort of lies in the middle, isn't it? Is that, yeah, the results are positive, but if we continue performing at this level, those results aren't likely to carry on. It would take a pretty remarkable run of fortune for them to. And, mm. you know, we, we need to improve the the performances to maintain the results. Yes, I think that's I think that's fair. All right, well, look... We'll leave it there. Don't forget to check out the Ian Wright podcast coming a bit later on this afternoon. If you want to give us a review on iTunes, please feel free to do that. You can give us a just a five-star review. That'd be great. Um, yeah, that's it. Five-star review would be nice. Um, yeah. Say what nice a, things. Say nice things. Look after Eddie Howe's garden. If you're Eddie Howe's next-door neighbour and he's going on holiday during this interlull, please make sure his flowers are watered because he would do he would do the same for you because he's so nice. So, so nice, guys. So nice. Such a nice guy, guys. And look look out for that other Arscast coming yes. imminently. Imminently. Yeah, depending on when you're listening to it, it could already be out and you've got as much arse in your ears as you could possibly need for a Monday. So until the possibly next one. Fit. <laughs> until the next one, folks, take it easy. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.